This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So most of you are probably aware that diet is really the cornerstone of care for the major epidemics of our day, um, which start in many ways with obesity, but trickle down to obesity's complications, including diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, congestive heart failure. And um, the challenge for us as physicians is we see patients in the clinical setting for 10 or 15 minutes, and we give them advice about the food that they should be eating, and then we send them out into a world um, that looks like this. and we ask them to do what we, at, what we say and what the USDA says when they're presented with a huge number of choices of foods, which um, for the most part are not healthy foods. And as we will talk about today, particularly the cheapest foods are not the healthiest foods. So the area which we're going to really focus on today, um, which is my topic of interest, is food insecurity. And the question really stems from this one. How can we make a meaningful difference when we see patients so infrequently and for so little time and then we send them out into the world to be exposed um, to a food environment that is very not conducive to healthy behaviors. So um, food security is defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as access by all people at all times to enough food for an active, healthy life. And the USDA defines food insecurity, the flip, as a household-level economic and social condition of uncertain access to adequate food. Now, we're only going to talk about food insecurity in the U.S. today. And in the U.S., this is really limited in its definition to financial access to food, lack of affordability of food. It overlaps in many ways with geographic access to food, with uh, disability, with inadequate access to kitchen uh, equipment, but really we're going to focus today on food affordability. Our most recent numbers um, from the USDA tell us that 12.7% of the U.S. population, or about one in eight households, reports being food insecure every year. Uh, And this includes households with both low food security and very low food security. And the USDA divides these groups by severity that roughly correspond to the following coping strategies. Households with low food security generally have to change the quality of food that they eat in order to make their food budgets, but they're able to maintain their caloric intake, whereas households with very low food security have to change both quality and quantity of food. And we're going to delve into that a lot more deeply, so hold that thought. Now, this is not just a recession problem. Food insecurity, since the USDA started tracking it with a consistent measure in the 1980s, has hovered between 11% and 13%. It got higher during the recession and has started to fall towards baseline levels. But this is a chronic problem in the U.S. It is entrenched within um, our social structure that a good 10% of the population is food insecure. 
So in the U.S., um, there, are, there are many, many risk factors for food insecurity, but I've pulled out a couple of demographic trends just to give you a flavor of which um, demographic groups in the U.S. have substantially higher than 12.7% of the U.S. population, and um, 12.7% of the population being food insecure. One of the strongest risk factors is, is being a child or living in a household with children. And in fact, about a third of all households in the U.S. headed by a single mother are food insecure. Um, obviously, people, uh, households with lower incomes um, have a higher risk of food insecurity, but, po- but poverty or low income and food insecurity are not synonymous, and it depends on what other pressures there are in the budget. And in fact, there are more people with incomes above the federal poverty line who are food insecure than there are people with incomes below the federal poverty line that are food insecure. And that's really significant because eligibility for resources um, um, becomes less easy to get as your income goes up, Uh, and black or Latino households. So um, when we reflect back on the experience of food insecurity across the lifespan, um, what we see is that nearly 50% of U.S. children and 90% of black children will be on food stamps at some point during their childhood. This is looking backwards. Uh, in time. These are generally for very brief, discrete episodes, but I give you the statistic to show you that this is a very, very common, almost normal experience in the U.S. to have inadequate um, income for food. And in fact, about 50% of U.S. adults will be on food stamps at some point between the ages of 20 and 65. Uh, So we're going to talk about four questions tonight, uh, assuming we have enough time. The first is, does food insecurity impact health? We'll start there. I'm going to talk about the concept of strategic science. We're going to talk about the economic implications of food insecurity, and then I'll give you a few ideas uh, about how we've been responding both locally and nationally, and how community members might be able to respond to this as well. So the first thing um, that we have to do is make a distinction between the concept of food insecurity and hunger. You know, um, many people um, criticize the concept of food insecurity because it really does dull an emotional punch. If I told you that 12.7% of the U.S. population was going hungry, there would be a huge outcry and an emotional response. And many people, I think, fairly criticize the politicization of this issue by by calling it food insecurity so that we don't really realize exactly what it is. I think that's a fair point. But we make a distinction between food insecurity and hunger in the research world for an important reason. And that is because hunger is a specific physical sensation that everybody feels. And food insecurity encompasses both the physical discomfort of hunger, and the coping strategies that people use in order to avoid the physical sensation of hunger. And this is the really critical point, because it is not the physical sensation of hunger that predisposes people to chronic disease. It is those coping strategies that households are forced to use in order to avoid that sensation of hunger that we're hardwired to do, we're hardwired to try to avoid the sensation of hunger. Those coping strategies are really the things that we think put you at higher risk of obesity and diabetes diabetes, and all of these other uh, chronic diet-sensitive diseases that are the epidemics of our day. And then that once you're chronically ill, those coping strategies also make it really challenging for you to do the things that your healthcare provider is going to ask you to do. So for example, 
If you're in a food insecure household, you are very likely to shift your dietary intake towards lower cost foods that tend to be fewer fruits and vegetables uh, and more energy dense, nutrient poor foods. We'll talk about that in a minute. You're very likely to shift dietary intake towards very highly filling foods, to concentrate intake on a very small variety of foods that you know are going to fill you up and keep you full until your next meal. And then other coping strategies like avoiding food waste and binging when food is available in anticipation of an episode of food inadequacy in the future. So this is the framework that we work with in understanding the relationships between food insecurity and health. And we'll start at the top of the slide. You start um, in a food insecure household. And um, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but exposing a household to inadequate income for food is one of the most stressful situations that you can put a family into. And so all of this is happening in the context of, um, generally, of a lot of household stress. And then in that food insecure household, um, there in, people are engaging a number of coping strategies that we've talked about and we will continue to talk about uh, that are adaptive in the short term because they help you avoid that sensation of hunger, but sustained over years or, or decades as food insecurity generally is in the U.S., will predispose you to physical and poor physical and mental health. And once you're ill in the U.S., your health care expenditures go up, your ability to maintain steady employment goes down, that puts increased pressure on your food budget because your household income goes down, your spending trade-offs go up, and then you're more likely to be in a food insecure household. So this is the cycle of food insecurity and chronic disease that we spend a lot of time trying to interrupt. Now, if you look at associations between food insecurity and illness, you will find them everywhere. Uh, The most commonly discussed um, conditions are here. Kids who live in food insecure households are much more likely to have iron deficiency anemia. This is probably from lack of access to meat. Uh, much more likely to have behavioral problems, poor mental health, poor cognitive development with lower academic achievement, uh, more hospitalizations. Adults are more likely to have diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease and depression. Um, Elderly have a decreased ability to maintain their independence in the community. Now, the key question for these associations is, to what extent is food insecurity causing this poor health Or to what extent is poor health so expensive in the U.S. that it's causing food insecurity? And we certainly know that the arrow goes this way. We know that poor health causes food insecurity. And really what we're focusing our attention on is to what extent does the arrow go the other way, too? To what extent does food insecurity predispose you to poor health? So I'm going to start by just talking a minute about coping strategies, starting with uh, dietary quality and food affordability. And um, this is um, a study that looked at the energy density of foods and um, and their costs. And really what I want you to pay attention here to here is that if I sent you to the store with $4.50 or $5 to spend 
on food today. That's all you got was $5 on food per day. How would you get to your 1,800 or your 2,000 calories? And the way you would do that is you would look for those things that gave you the most calories per dollar. And if you did that and you were very evidence-based and you pulled up this article by Adam Drunowski, it would tell you that if you wanted to get to your 1,800 or 2,000 calories and you were an economically rational person, you would go into that grocery store and you would buy oil shortening, margarine, butter, sugar, bread, pasta, and rice. And if I gave you more money to spend, you might start creeping towards the right side of the graph. And maybe given enough money, you would, be, you would start to be able to get towards those lighter shade squares and triangles, which are your fruits and vegetables. So these are economically rational decisions given a very constrained food budget to put that money into calories for, for calorically dense and nutritionally poor foods. Now, this graph shows you the consumer price index for food over the last 30 years. The consumer price index for food is the average cost of an average market basket of food for the average consumer in the U.S. You can see by the black line that it has been steadily rising over the last 30 years, um, but held down relatively by your yellow and red lines, which are your non-alcoholic beverages and your carbonated drinks. Yay, they're keeping the price of food down, but lifted upward or becoming relatively more expensive over time um, by all of your fruits and vegetables. Your healthier foods are costing more. Now, this is in the context of the lowest income quintile of households in the U.S. already spending upwards of 30% to even 35% of their entire household budget on food. So there isn't a lot of leeway. And when you're, we're making recommendations to patients who are food insecure, the, the thought of raising the food budget, even by a small amount, puts a, makes, makes a huge difference in the food budget. As a matter of fact, a diet recommended by the USDA, which would be five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, would require a low-income family to spend up to 70% of their entire food budget on fruits and vegetables. And when you actually go and do the math then, it makes it very challenging with that other 30% to maintain the calories you need to not lose weight or to avoid that physical sensation of hunger. But again, if you're economically rational and you want to save money, then all you have to do is shift your caloric intake to saturated fat and sugar. Now, that being said, when you talk to a low-income consumer about food affordability, the calculation is not only about the money that gets put down at the register. The calculation about food affordability also has to do with, do I have time to prepare this product? Healthy foods tend to require more preparation, much harder to do when you have two jobs and you're a single mom. They require equipment for storage and preparation, so you can't be living in most SROs in San Francisco that don't have access to kitchens. They require time to travel to uh, a full-service store that is often outside of your neighborhood to get an acceptable quality and quantity of fruits and vegetables. And then there's also this fear of food waste. So you may stay as a physician to, uh, to a mom with children go out and buy some broccoli. It'll be really good for your kids to eat it. But if that head of broccoli costs a dollar or two and your kids don't eat the broccoli, that doesn't matter for me. That matters a lot in a food-insecure household. 
Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about bandwidth and stress, but I don't want to leave it out. So I will just mention to you that um, hunger takes up a huge amount of brain space. And a family that doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from often develops a razor focus on that issue. As you can imagine, food is a very basic need. And it crowds out the ability to do other things that are important for your health, uh, registering for benefits, refilling your prescriptions, applying for employment, taking care of your health needs, parenting your children, etc. So I, this is a really important topic. I'm not going to address it today, but I, but I, I don't want to leave it out either. And then the last coping strategy that we're going to talk about is um, under the category of eating behaviors, and we're going to focus our t attention on episodic food inadequacy. And what I mean by that is that the experience of food insecurity in the U.S. is cyclic and episodic. And what I mean by that is that episodes of food adequacy are punctuated by generally quite brief episodes of food inadequacy, discrete often short episodes. And these are caused by a number of different things. In many households, it's because you get to the end of the month and the pay doesn't last all the way to the end of the month or the budget doesn't last. So you get to week three and there's nothing left. The pantry's bare, there's no money, so there's nothing to eat in the last week of the month. There's a lot of seasonal variation. In cold weather climates, food insecurity rates spike in the wintertime because so much of the budget goes to heating. In, not in San Francisco and in many parts of the Bay Area, food insecurity rates spike in the summertime because the children who've been getting 14 meals at school, breakfast and lunch, suddenly the parents are responsible for feeding uh, the kids uh, every day three meals. Uh, and then there are random income shocks, and the most common source of these random income shocks are actually um, health crises, which can be very small health crises, but have a significant enough impact on the income on the household food budget uh, that you have a discrete episode of, of food inadequacy. The average food insecure household, though, has one of these snaps seven times a year. So it's repetitive, it's frequent. And you can see these fluctuations in dietary intake, particularly among mothers, but you can also see it in grocery store scanning receipts. You can see it in the lines of the food pantry that get much longer at the end of the month. Uh, you will notice that big box stores like Walmarts and Targets will increase their staffing in the inventory at the beginning of the month because so many shoppers rush into the store in those first days of the month um, after benefits are received or, or um, paychecks come in um, because the cupboards are bare. So we have been able to take advantage of this to understand what happens with diabetes in the context of food insecurity. And so you have to know a few things about diabetes that I will review just in case this isn't um, uh, very familiar to you. Um, your body has a very tightly controlled system for regulating blood sugar. And if you do not have diabetes, your blood sugar is maintained in a very narrow window all the time by the magic of your pancreas and its release of insulin. And it works perfectly. If you have diabetes, that system is out of whack. And your body is not producing enough insulin, so your sugar goes way up. And we give you medication to bring that sugar down, but it's not a tightly controlled system. We, your blood sugar 
sugar goes up when you eat, particularly when you eat carbohydrates. Your blood sugar goes down when you get physical activity or you take your diabetes medication. But when you change the amount of food you eat or you change your amount of physical activity, you're not necessarily regulated in that tight window like you would be if your pancreas was working well uh, and you had and you did not have diabetes. We worry about this because when your blood sugar is too high, uh, you're predisposed to blindness and amputations and kidney failure and a host of other diabetes complications. But when your blood sugar falls too low, you also have an acute medical crisis that can predispose you to cognitive problems and in the worst case scenario, seizures, coma, and death. Low blood sugar has to be treated and treated quickly. Low blood sugar we call hypoglycemia. So as you can imagine, we can use this system to understand what happens in a household when there is monthly variation in dietary intake and understand then what might be the health implications of food insecurity. Because you, as you can imagine, your, your compensatory strategies during food shortage and food adequacy are very different. During episodes of food shortage, you're much more likely to skip meals and reduce your caloric intake, while during episodes of food adequacy, you're much more likely to systematically overconsume, shift to energy-dense foods, and we know that these coping strategies on the left can predispose you to low blood sugar and on the right to high blood sugar. So the question really is, is food insecurity having an impact on people's blood sugar if they have diabetes? So this was our study that looked at that question. And what you see on this graph is millions and millions of admissions to California hospitals between, the, between 2000 and 2009, plotted by the day of the month in which the admission occurred. Now, remember I told you that we know that um, fluctuation in food stores in a household vary in the month, and that food is likely to run out at the end of the month in a food insecure household. So you might be saying, ah, oh, if that's the case, then it may be more likely in a food insecure household that patient, that people would get more low blood sugar at the end of the month than people who weren't in food insecure households. So in this green line in the middle, you see every single hospital admission um, of all people across the state of California for low blood sugar, and it's basically flat. You have an equal chance of being admitted on the first, the second, the third, or the 31st of the month. But if you look at the red line at the top, these are the lowest income quintile of patients. What you see is on every day of the month, the lowest income quintile has a has a higher risk of being admitted for low blood sugar, but it's a 27% higher risk at the end of the month than the beginning of the month, suggesting that food insecurity is having a real impact not only on people's health outcomes, but on admissions to the hospital. So a 27% increase at the end of the month. So you might ask yourself, how much does this really matter? And so these are some, this is some data from 2011, the most recent that we have available, that gives you the average cost in a managed care plan in the U.S. for a single inpatient admission for low blood sugar, $17,564 a year uh, uh, per episode for every single one of those excess admissions for low blood sugar. And you can compare that on the right to the USDA's estimate of how much money it takes to feed a family of four on their lowest cost food plan, the thrifty food plan, $657. A huge difference. So we're going to come back to this in a minute. 
but I'm going to take a little bit of a commercial break to talk about strategic science so that um, we can think about ways to explore this relationship in a way that might be particularly impactful and lead towards solutions and not just understanding the problem. So um, <clears throat> this is the concept of strategic science. We are really good as researchers at communicating with ourselves. We do a really good job of writing technical articles that are filled with jargon that we publish in, in journals that nobody reads, and we publish it maybe a year after we do it, maybe 18 months after we do it, and it has very little impact. Whereas really in research like this, what we really want to do is create social change and policy change. But none of that work we do, none of that, that publication in, in peer-reviewed um, journals that look so good on my CV makes any difference in the real world to people who are food insecure. So the concept of strategic science really asks the question, what would lie between research and social and policy change? How would we get there? What is in that black box? And really, the missing link, according to this concept of strategic science, is a whole bunch of people that researchers don't traditionally talk to. Uh, and it is legislators and regulators and courts and the press and the public and NGOs and industry. And that if we were better at doing our job, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have a research agenda that culminated in, in answering a specific research question that was important for us or for our career. Instead, we would, we would answer the specific research questions that the change agents needed to make specific decisions that would impact the people who were food insecure. So strategic science would say, rather than me studying the next question about food insecurity and diabetes, I need to get out into the world and figure out who's going to change this system. And then I have to ask them, what evidence do you need to change this system? And then I have to go and answer that question and communicate the answer to that question back, not in the New England Journal of Medicine, but in a way that that change maker can use to make a change. This is the concept of strategic science. So that's my commercial break. We're going to come back to it. And we're going to use that to understand why and how we should think about the economic impl implications of food insecurity. Okay, so back to this slide. As a policymaker, and probably you too in the audience, we're probably thinking to yourself, all right, if I put money here and helped households to meet their food needs, could we save money here? That's what the policymakers want to know. And so to answer that question, first we have to understand how do people get to that $657? How do people in food insecure households meet their monthly food budget? And there's really four big buckets that I think about in terms of the ways that people meet their food budgets. There are the federal nutrition programs. There's the charitable feeding system. There is informal social support, friends, family, churches. And then there's making income shifts or budget shifts um, within your own household budget to trade off one necessity for another. I'm not going to pay for gas in my car because we have to afford food this month. I'm not going to refill my medications to afford food. I'm not going to pay for food because I need to pay my rent. 
We're going to talk a little bit about all of these. But I'm going to start by talking about SNAP. Now, SNAP used to be called the Food Stamps Program. I called it Food Stamps at the beginning because it was looking back in time over the previous 50 years. But now we refer to it, the program as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It is by far the largest uh, nutrition program in the U.S. It reaches about one in seven Americans per year at an average, uh, at an annual cost of about $70 billion, reaches about 46 million people. And the scope and scale of the SNAP program is tremendous. You can spend, SNAP is available in every county in the U.S., but the average benefit is low. Uh, it's about $1.40 per person per meal if you average it out across the U.S. SNAP is enormously effective at reducing food insecurity the rate of food insecurity would be many percentage points higher were it not for the SNAP program. However, 54% of households enrolled in SNAP are still food insecure, and that is because the most food insecure households are the most likely to enroll, and the benefit level is not enough in many of these households to allow them to cross the threshold to food security. So, so SNAP reduces the depth and the breadth of their food insecurity, but does not always make them food secure. So I'm going to take you back to this graph. And if you are like me and you're talking to change makers out in the world, what those change makers would say is, how do we know this is food insecurity, A? And B, how do we know that if we do something about it, if we provide people with more money for food, that we can get rid of this peak in low blood sugar admissions at the end of the month. Or another way of saying that is, does SNAP make a difference? So one of the things that we were able to do was a natural experiment. And in May of 2009, Barack Obama signed um, into law the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which did a number of things, but among them it provided a temporary and quite substantial increase in SNAP benefits that lasted until October of 2013 and then expired. And so we asked the question, what happened to that increase in end-of-the-month admissions for low blood sugar during the period of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act? Because if SNAP helps, we should have seen that low blood sugar um, spike go down. And in fact, when we did this, uh, we looked across commercially insured adults this time, and what we found was an 8% increase, 8% increase in the odds of being admitted for low blood sugar at the end of the month that we could see very clearly before the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, after the, recovery, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, but it disappeared between May of 2009 and October of 2013, suggesting that SNAP made a difference. And if we then went and said, because we looked at this within an insurance data set, how much did we save per year by not having those low blood sugar admissions? There's your number. $54 million in emergency department and inpatient hospitalization costs saved just for those commercially insured adults between the ages of 18 and 64. 
So then we went one step farther and said, okay, well, what is the difference in healthcare costs between people living in food secure and food insecure households? And you know, you would expect, given that last data on the on the end of the month increase in, in low blood sugar, that the cost might be quite high uh, if you live in a food insecure household. So these people in this data set were asked whether they were food insecure, and then we followed them for two years to see what happened to their health care expenditures. This is population-based data representative of everybody in the U.S., and what you see is a difference in subsequent health care expenditures of about $1,863 per year if you live in a food insecure household compared to if you did not. And if we take that $1,863 and multiply it by the number of food insecure people in the, in the U.S., that's your number. Now, not all of these costs may go away if we address food insecurity, but the number is big, and it starts people talking, and it gets the policymakers to open their eyes and say, we have a problem here. And we're paying, even if we fail to address this problem in food, we may be paying for the consequences in health. So then we said, well, if we, look, if we take that $1,863 differential, does it make a difference if you're enrolled in SNAP or not? Because what we would posit is that if SNAP really helps, the people enrolled in SNAP shouldn't have an $1,863 increase in their health care expenditures, it should be something less. And in fact, SNAP is associated with a reduction in annual health care expenditures of about $1,400 per year. So we think that if we treat food insecurity, if we address the problem, we will have an impact on people's health. Now, so then strategic science would say, well, it's not good enough to do that. Now we have to go and start communicating this work to the people for whom it makes a difference. And that is when we as researchers have to step outside of our comfort zone uh, and start doing things like communicating in the press, why paying for nutrition saves money on health care, uh, or this one that just came out in the Sacramento Bee last week, California's housing crisis is worsening hunger and health. The higher your rent, the less money you have to afford uh, your household food budget. Now, I have to stop here and say, why are we talking about costs? The federal nutrition programs, SNAP and the other ones are, as, as well, which we'll talk about for a minute, um, are designed to feed people. They do very effective jobs at feeding people. They are not designed to save health care costs. And so we have to be very careful when we have this conversation not to suggest that the reason why we should support the SNAP program is to save money in health care. However, that being said, there are very strong incentives for health systems to reduce costs. And cost is really a currency that gets many of these different sectors aligned. The public health community, the healthcare community, and the social safety net community, which very infrequently agree on anything or even talk to each other about how to solve these problems. And when we can get them aligned on these problems and when we can start moving money around, we see that we, that we can find support for programs and policies that can make a difference in food insecurity. Okay, so the last question we are going to uh, address is how should we be responding? And I will take you back to this picture. 
I have not mentioned the WIC program, um, which I, I will just tell you is a much smaller program than SNAP, but very, very important. It provides um, healthy food only, not any food, but healthy food only for um, low-income children under the age of five and pregnant and postpartum mothers. Um, we're not going to talk a lot about WIC, but WIC has a huge amount of evidence behind its efficacy in improving health and um, cognitive potential academic achievement for children. Um, we're going to talk about the charitable feeding system in my role as Feeding America, and then we're going to talk about one program that sort of spans uh, nutrition programs in the charitable feeding system, or at least spans the public-private world, and that's EDSF. So we're going to start by um, talking about how we can use our research to influence uh, NGOs or non-government organizations, often community-based organizations in the U.S., to create social change and policy change. And a lot of the work that I've done in this space has been with the Feeding America Network. Feeding America is the umbrella organization that sits over 200 local, regional, and state-level food banks in the U.S. A food bank is essentially a warehouse that sources stores, and then distributes food to food programs like food pantries. And those food pantries or free dining rooms or soup kitchens or congregate meal sites distribute the food directly to people who, who need it. So Feeding America reaches people through about 60,000 food pantries and meal programs for a reach of about 46 million Americans annually. Um, Feeding America has food banks whose service area covers every county in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. So one of the things that we've started to do is implement behavioral economic policies in food pantries. Many of you probably heard about behavioral economics this year when the Nobel Prize in economics went to um, the man who really started the behavioral economics field. Um, but essentially, these are small hints within your food environment that encourage people to take healthier rather than less healthy foods. And the way we do this within the food pantry is by having attractive, organized, and full displays of fruits and vegetables, having healthy foods displayed first and at eye level and in multiple places, and in displaying unhealthy foods in lower quantities. They're still there. They're just in lower quantities. People tend to take less of the unhealthy food and more of the healthy food. Now, this is the ideal way in which a grocery store should be arranged as well, but there's a lot of market forces in your grocery store that will prevent this from happening. But we can sometimes do this in the food pantry and sometimes have really tremendous impacts on the food that people choose to take home from the food pantry. Here's another example of how policies that we implement through the food banking system can make a real difference. This is a photo that I took in a food bank in the Midwest. Uh, it is a pallet of soda. And if you see on this, um, this piece on the left here, the sign says this is expired or spoiled product for disposal, and it's sending that pallet of donated soda directly to the garbage compactor. This is food that otherwise would be distributed to the food pantry and now is being distributed to the landfill. Um, and again, it is working to communicate this type of work and these type of challenges and the problems and the policy solutions we need in a format where change makers can see them and address them. So this is an example of how we were very honest with um, 
in this case, a New York Times reporter, around the fact that food pantries don't always look like a place where you would want to go if you had diabetes. They don't always have fruits and vegetables easily available, but we recognize that, and we are making as a non-government organization, tremendous changes to better support people's health and well-being and to acknowledge the fact that diabetes and obesity and other diet-sensitive chronic diseases are epidemics among the population that, uh, that uses food pantries. They're epidemics among everybody, but the rates are certainly higher in low-income populations. All right, and then I'm going to turn for just a minute to talk about EDSF. EDSF is a local program that we started in San Francisco to help address the gap uh, in the fact that for many people, SNAP is not available in San Francisco because some people are ineligible for it. We can talk about why if you guys are interested. Um, but, it, but particularly because our housing costs are high, even for those households that are enrolled in SNAP, it's not enough. It's not enough to make people food secure. And so EDSF is a healthy food voucher program. And what we do is we partner uh, with more than 60 community-based organizations uh, all across Tenderloin, South of Market, Bayview, Hunters Point. And those community organizations reach people who are food insecure and in many cases have chronic disease and who would like to eat a healthier diet, but for lack of affordability. And what those community-based organizations do is they distribute our vouchers for us. You take your voucher to any of our stores, corner stores, farmer's markets, big box stores like Safeway. You, just, you redeem that voucher for $5 worth of whatever fruits and vegetables you want. That voucher gets mailed back to us. We send, the, we send the farmer's market or the corner store or the grocery store a check for that $5 worth of fruits and vegetables. We've had thousands of households in the program. We now have every low-income pregnant woman in the city receiving EDSF vouchers to the tune of $40 of fruits and vegetables per month. Now, this works... Oh, this is just my favorite quote. I wish everyone could be in this program. We do, too. We would. If we had enough money, we would put everyone in it. This program really we see as a triple win. One is it certainly supports healthy eating habits. It certainly, we think, increases food insecurity. But more importantly than that, it drives the supply of fruits and vegetables into underserved neighborhoods. And what you might imagine, based on what I've told you already, is that we have this supposed problem of food deserts in low-income neighborhoods. And in many, many communities, a lot of effort and personnel time and resources are spent on plopping a full-service grocery store into that food desert. And so often, that grocery store fails. And the message that gets out is people in that neighborhood just don't want to eat healthy. And I hope what you can see now is that the fundamental problem is that there is not enough money in that neighborhood to support the supply of a highly perishable product. Because if, if there were enough money and there were enough demand, then market forces would have those fruits and vegetables be stocked. And so really we see this as a way of supporting the turnover of fresh fruits and vegetables in underserved neighborhoods so that people who have vouchers are able to get those fruits and vegetables, but people who are not, who do not have vouchers, are able to get those fruits and vegetables as well. To date, we've put about $850,000 worth of uh, money into the grocery stores in these three neighborhoods just for the purchase of fruits and vegetables. 
And we know we're on the right track because participants increase their fruit and vegetable intake by about a serving per day. They report being more food secure. In particular, they say that they're able to stretch their food budget by an additional week per month. They have greater confidence in making healthy food choices. Uh, They report improved health and quality of life. And our vendors love it. Uh, And what I am most proud of is that um, our corner stores, um, in particular two of them in the Tenderloin neighborhood, that used to only be able to get delivery of their fruits and vegetables once a week, now get delivery two or three times a week. Why? Because they can afford to do so. The turnover is so much greater. And that means that there's a greater variety, there's a greater quality, there's less spoilage, there's less food waste. And this is how we start building a healthy food system, not just in our high-income neighborhoods, but in our lower-income neighborhoods as well. So um, our goal is to be citywide by 2020. If you're more interested in EDSF, um, check out our website, edsfvoucher.org. One other policy-relevant question that comes up from this as a final example of strategic science, and that is that when I first started presenting this data, a number of people in audiences like this, but also policymakers, legislators, said to me, well, that's easy. We'll just take the SNAP benefits that get distributed once a month, and we'll just distribute them once a week instead, and then we won't get that end-of-the-month increase in in low blood sugar. And my, I, I fought back very hard against this because my real gut feeling was that the problem is not that people don't know how to budget, The problem is that the SNAP benefits are inadequate. So you could give it every single day. If it's not enough, it's not enough. And you would just change the timing of the low blood sugar instead of at the end of the the month. It would be at the end of every week, right? But we didn't have any evidence for this. It also incidentally makes it really challenging in rural communities if you get your benefits every week because you can't make that single trip to the big box store, you know, 100 miles away at the beginning of the month. In any case, I talked and talked and talked about why it wasn't a good idea to distribute benefits once a week instead of once a month. And I'll tell you, benefits are distributed on an EBT card, like a debit card. So it wouldn't cost the government much money at all to change that to once a week. It would be a really easy fix. But at one point, it dawned on me, why just talk about that? If I really want to do strategic science with policy impact, we can study that. I have my personal opinion about what's the best, that that wouldn't make a difference, but we can study that. And then we can take that back to Capitol Hill, and we can tell them that the problem is not that people don't know how to budget. The problem is that you're not giving them enough money to budget with. And so we've done that. We have a trial, a research trial in the field to answer two very policy-relevant questions. One is, does it make a difference if you give people their benefits weekly versus monthly? I think it won't make a difference, but other people would disagree. And the other is, does it make a difference if you give benefits for just fruits and vegetables or if you give them uh, for anything? And we can talk about why that's so policy-relevant later on if people are interested. So um, in my last slide, I will change this question from how should we respond to um, just give you an idea as community members. um, How should you respond? And I will posit to you um, that there really, I think, is a role for not just strategic science, but for strategic advocacy as well. Because many, many of us have 
contact with and influence over change agents of different kinds in our own communities. And those change agents, are you, all we have to do is talk to them to understand what kinds of strategic questions are in their minds. And then somebody, many times the evidence for this stuff already exists. Somebody just has to be able to find that and bring it back to our change agents and communicate it in a way that is um, impassioned and communicates the science. So here are some ideas for you if food insecurity is something that you're really interested in. The Farm Bill is enormously important for SNAP. Uh, as many of you know, it is being renegotiated now. It is set to expire in 2018. Um, our party line is to protect benefits and oppose block grants. Block grants would be the ruin of the SNAP program. Um, SNAP is the best answer, but benefits don't reach many, and they are too low for many that they do reach. And this is the role that local initiatives play to support food security in communities and pocket populations that aren't reached by SNAP or for whom SNAP is just woefully inadequate. And then finally, one of the silver linings, I think, of less federal decision-making and power is that many more decisions are being made locally, and we have a lot of influence over local uh, politics, and local policies have a huge influence on food insecurity rates. So if you're interested in more state-level and local policies, I will send you to the California Food Policy Advocates, which is a tremendous organization that does work on state and local policies, and I've really... Um, um, kept my, my remarks today focused on federal nutrition policy. Okay, so um, with that, I will say thank you, and uh, we have a little bit of time for questions. So the question is about digestion and the extent to which uh, digestion is an overlooked topic in these discussions and something we could do better with. Um, and I have to agree with you, digestion is... Um, definitely overlooked in these policy discussions. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I will focus on is the tremendous impact of stress in these food insecure households and the enormous role, the enormous overlap um, between digestion and stress. Now, one of the things that you may be particularly interested in um, is that... Um, we know that um, in the field of HIV and food insecurity, there is a lot of evidence that a lot of these digestive issues are really important. Food insecure people with HIV are much less likely to have uh, viral loads that are controlled. They're much less likely to be medically adherent. In the global world, the reason for this is really interesting. When you start, if you have advanced HIV and you start taking your HIV medications, what happens is your appetite comes back. And when your appetite comes back, that's horrible if you live in a food insecure household. It hurts. And so people don't want to take their HIV medications because they don't have adequate food um, when their appetite comes back. So it's a really interesting question, and you're right, underexplored. So this graph here includes all hospital admissions across the state of California, so insured and uninsured. Let me repeat the question. The question is around um, lack of insurance and whether this underestimates the increase in end-of-the-month admissions for hypoglycemia. You are, this, this graph does include uninsured. 
the um, study that was done around the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was only commercially insured people. But you also raise a really good point, which is that the vast majority of low blood sugar episodes never see the emergency room, even severe low blood sugar episodes. They're treated at home. As a matter of fact, what's the treatment for low blood sugar? Does anybody know at home? Orange juice. You eat something. That's so simple unless you're food insecure and you have no food, and then it's not so simple, right? So this does vastly underestimate the problem for a number of reasons, one of which is that most low blood sugar never comes to the hospital. Great question. So the question is around subsidies. And aren't our farm subsidies just making this worse by subsidizing corn production that ends up as corn syrup and sugar and not subsidizing healthy fruits and vegetables? That makes so much sense to me. And I am not... Um, an economist, but I spend a lot of time in rooms with both conservative and liberal Democrat and Republican economists, and they tend to agree that corn subsidies don't make a difference. Now, I will explain this to you in the way that I understand it, which may not be perfect, but you asked, so I'm going to explain it the way that I understand it, which is this. How come you can take an ear of corn and take it to the grocery store and it'll be one price. All you gotta do is pick it and get it to the grocery store and it's one price. Or you can pick that same ear of corn and you can transport it to a facility that will extract the corn syrup. And then you will take that corn syrup to another facility where they will make it into a granola bar. And then they will take that granola bar and they'll take it to that same grocery store and through that entire process it got cheaper. How does that happen? And the answer, they would say, is that you've taken a perishable product and you've made it shelf-stable. And there is so much value added in the shelf stability of the candy bar or the granola bar that the corn is always going to be more expensive, whether it's been, the fresh product is always going to be more expensive, whether it's subsidized or not. Now, that still doesn't completely make sense to me, but that's what they say. The, and, and there's a lot of other complexity there, too. So this falls under the rubric of only talk about the things that you're an expert in, and I will, I will put that in the category of things that I'm not expert in. Uh, so I don't fully um, understand it, but there are a lot of things within the food within the farm bill that are not related to the federal nutrition programs that people think will have a big impact um, on food security. And, and those are very active areas of advocacy as well. So it's a great question, and thank you for raising it. I'm going to paraphrase and say the question is really around, um, around do we have any evidence that we can change palates uh, with programs such as EDSF. And another way that you've talked about this is two competing problems. There's the problem of inaffordability, but there's also the problem of people just don't like healthy food. And, and I appreciate the question a lot. I used to have a slide in all of my talks that said that the, that talked about the, the very complex drivers of unhealthy eating in our food environment. And food insecurity is one tiny piece. So if I could wave my magic wand and take away food insecurity in the U.S. overnight, would we solve the obesity epidemic? No. There's no way, because we haven't addressed all of those other factors. And so the way I like to talk about it is that this is a critical step, 
but it's not going to solve the problem on its own. So then the question is about palatability. And there is a lot of evidence that it takes longer than six weeks to take change palates. And a lot of these programs are six weeks long. EDSF is six to 12 months long because we know that six weeks isn't enough to change your perceptions of yourself as someone who I'm not someone who eats vegetables to someone who eats vegetables, or I don't know how to make vegetables on my budget to I have all of these strategies that I've learned for how to make vegetables on my budget. Does that really work? We have preliminary evidence that it does, but it's something that needs to be studied much more rigorously. And the the Chive study that I presented on one of those very last slides, that is one of the things that it aims to understand is, is six months enough to create lasting changes, or do you have to provide the vouchers in perpetuity? And I'll tell you what my thought is, my, my feeling about this, and I, and I don't know this for sure, so come back in a year and ask me, is that in the most food insecure households, when you remove that voucher, you, there's, there's no money left for fruits and vegetables, so your dietary intake is going to go right back to where it was. But in less food insecure households, what we hope is that people, because we've taken away the financial risk of trying, that people have learned new strategies, they've learned new recipes, they've become accustomed to eating healthier foods, they've seen the benefits in their own health, and so they can maintain at least some of that change in dietary intake. Yeah, so um, again, I'll paraphrase. Why is food insecurity so poorly correlated with income? And would there be a way to more rationally dole out, ration out SNAP benefits so that we gave more money to more food insecure households and less money to less food insecure households, yes? Okay, so one of the things that we understand about food insecurity is that uh, your household food budget tends to be to be addressed last. You pay your rent first. You pay your one-time big expenses first, and then and food generally comes last for a couple of reasons that are often very psychological in nature, but are also very systemic and structural. And that is because I only need in a food insecure household, on average, about four dollars and fifty cents to feed myself today. And there's always a chance that something's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day that'll get me that $4.50. So that's one reason why people tend to save their food budget for the, to pay last. The other reason is that there is so little of a social support network for anything else left in the U.S., with the exception of Section 8 house, uh, vouchers for housing, which a small number of very fortunate people have but is, is not by any means enough to support most, there's still a huge amount of housing insecurity in the U.S. But, but access to, there are social safety net programs like the food banking system that will allow people in a true emergency to get access to food. And so that's why the food budget is often paid last. Now we've done some modeling to try to figure out how much money the system could save if we were able to more tightly relate your SNAP benefits to your food insecurity rate. The challenge is that there's not really a good way to operationalize it. And as a matter of fact, the federal government for years um, has talked about doing a cost of living adjustment within SNAP, and even that has not been operationalized for lack of a good way to do it or political will and, and a host of other um, political reasons. 
So that's a, that's a great question. The question is around the lack of um, convenience factors in a lot of foods. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'm going to say two things about that. The first is that one of the things that a low-income household will tell you is particularly challenging about becoming a vegetable eater is virtually any vegetable that you may purchase, you come up with a simple recipe for it, those simple recipes assume you have basics in your pantry, like olive oil, garlic, dill, basil, something. Most people don't just eat raw vegetables. But in a food insecure household, those spices, oils, condiments are missing. Uh, and so it, this is something that makes, um, that makes the, the financial risk of becoming someone who eats vegetables higher. Uh, this is why I've always had this dream. I've never been able to execute it. But I've always had this dream that with your EDSF vouchers, your first packet of EDSF vouchers would come with a bottle of olive oil. So if anybody wants to fund a bottle of olive oil for everyone who enters the program, I would love to do it. But we haven't figured out how to do it yet. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are only a very few number of products that you can't buy with your SNAP benefits. And one of those is food that was intended for consumption on site. So you can't walk into the grocery store and buy a sandwich at the deli or buy a whole cooked roasted chicken. Um, and that lack, of, that lack of convenience factor actually is very challenging um, for, many, for many households. Now, there is an exception in San Francisco. If you're homeless or you don't have access to cooking facilities, you can use your SNAP benefits if you specifically request it and get entered into the program at a limited number of restaurants um, in San Francisco. They're mostly unhealthy restaurants. Surprise, surprise. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that we have to keep in mind is every little bit of convenience factor adds price to, uh, to a product. So, I mean, you guys know this well. A, a sliced mango is way more expensive than, than a whole mango. Sliced apples are more expensive than whole apples. And, and the challenge in many of these households is, is I can afford to, to pay for that convenience for my household, and you're not able to do that in a very uh, low income household. This is one reason um, where you will see here that your EDSF vouchers are good for any fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables, including prepackaged. Because we want, however, it, we want you to be able to shop in the store you usually shop at. We, we don't want you to have to change your store. We don't want you to have to do all this extra work. We want you to be able to eat fruits and vegetables the same way that a food secure household would. As long as it doesn't have added sugar or salt, you can buy it with your EDSF vouchers. So how common is the EDSF system in other parts of the country? There are fruits and vegetable voucher systems in many, many localities. The EDSF system is unique in a number of ways. The first is that most fruit and vegetable vouchers are good for redemption only at farmer's markets, and we've made a huge effort to make it good at corner stores and big box stores so that you don't have to change the way you normally shop. The second is that most fruit and vegetable voucher programs are very brief, usually four to six weeks, and tied to an activity. So, um, you know, if you come to our self-management class on diabetes, then you get a voucher. Um, that we see this, we see this as putting the cart before the horse. That really we want to do what really what we want to do is provide access for people, and then if they're interested in, in getting nutrition education or self-management support, then they have the tools in their pocket 
pocket to actually implement the advice that they're being given from their healthcare provider or, or from their cooking class or from whatever. Most of the community-based organizations that we partner with offer some sort of self-management support or nutrition education. Yeah, great question. So I'm really glad that you brought up the denture question um, because there is so there, the problem of poor dentition uh, and cavities is um, an enormous problem in the low-income population. Medi-Cal for many, many, many years did not cover any dental benefits whatsoever. So they are very overlapping problems. Now, let me say on the one hand that the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, which stocks all the food pantries in San Francisco and Marin, has an enormous amount of fruits and vegetables. 60% of everything that they distribute is fruits and vegetables. So the food pantries that you will see in this city in general are beautiful. They look like markets. Uh, so that's on the one hand. What EDSF offers that I think is an advantage, and, and, I'm, and I'm a huge fan of the food banking system. What EDSF offers is the ability for you to go in and choose what you want. And in many cases, this is your preferences. So, you know, I, I only like to eat apples. It's the only fruit I like. Fine, only buy apples. In many cases, it's I can only eat soft fruits and vegetables. So you give me an, you give me an apple, and I don't have dentures that fit. I, I, I can't do anything with it. But with EDSF, you can go in and you can choose whatever you want. And so we really see this element of choice as another nudge towards allowing people to make very complex, difficult behavioral changes um, that um, are challenging for anybody to make. But in particular, if you're food insecure and you don't have adequately fitting, fitted dentures and all of these other problems that, that our most vulnerable populations have. So how is the homeless population um, getting food? Um, we have a really robust hunger safety net in San Francisco. There are more than 200 food pantries. Uh, the SNAP program reaches a lot of people. Uh, about 50% of eligible Californians, though, are not enrolled, and it misses huge segments of the population. The most significant in California is that anybody with SSI, Social Security Insurance, or SSDI, Disability Insurance, is not eligible for SNAP. You're also not eligible if you are undocumented. Um, there's also there's other um, ineligibility criteria. But there is this network of food pantries and um, free dining rooms that many, many uh, homeless people rely on to, for their food needs. And many of them we try to reach through EDSF as well. Okay, so two questions. One is local solutions for addressing food insecurity um, among children in the summertime. Um, and um, we have tried with EDSF, actually with some success, by basically sending vouchers home in kids' backpacks over the summer months when they present to, uh, when they come to um, programs like the Boys and Girls Club. And even without enrolling the parents in the program and doing a whole, you know, our whole introductory orientation spiel, even without that, it's, it's such a self-explanatory, user-friendly model. You just send the vouchers home with the list of stores, and, and most of those vouchers get spent. So, um, 
So yes, we would love to do more of that reaching kids over the summertime. Summertime, there is a USDA-funded uh, National Summer Lunch Program, so kids can go to libraries, community centers to get lunch. The uptake rate is way, way, way lower than than the number of kids that are reached during the school year, but it does exist. There's also a problem among undocumented um, children or families with undocumented parents because the schools are safe sites, but the places where the summer lunches are given, the libraries and the community centers are not. So that's another problem. So one of the things we've really thought about is, though, is maybe summertime isn't the place where you really need the voucher since we have a summer lunch program, uh, you know, in an emergency, but really winter break, spring break, these short vacations when there really aren't other, um, other resources available. Your second question was around, are there, is there evidence that we can change children's food palates? And, um, I, if I can just change the question very slightly, which is to say, is there evidence that um, that introduction of foods, healthy foods, earlier in a child's life course will change their palate or, or will... Um, end up with them having a different palate? The answer is yes. That if we can get fruits and vegetables into a home with a very small child, we have a much greater chance of changing that child's eating behaviors for the rest of their life. And the younger we can go, the better. Particularly because, you know, as any of you who have raised kids know, when you have a two-year-old, they eat what, you know, what whatever you put in front of them. Once you have a 15-year-old, as I know really well, I can bring as many fruits and vegetables into the house as, as I want, and if they're not going to eat it, they're not going to eat it. So one of the reasons is that we have that, that parents of young children have a lot of control over what their children eat. But the other reason is that these taste preferences um, are formed very, very young, and it's really hard to change them once they're laid down. It's a great question. So um, as I mentioned before, food insecurity exists with a lot of other vulnerabilities that impact people's ability to eat a healthy diet. And you are absolutely right that transportation is a huge one of those. So many people would say that your EDSF vouchers should never be used at a corner store because they just don't provide enough healthy options. And my philosophy has always been, well, you can't change the food environment without keeping the corner stores involved, but also that people need to be able to shop in a place that they can get to. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I really will give kudos to this city for recognizing this. There is a really great program now where um, if you qualify for in-home support services, so city-funded services to help you with your cooking and cleaning and medication so that you can remain independent in the in the community rather than being transferred to assisted living or a nursing home. Those IHSS workers can also be paid now to be your person to go pick up food for you at the grocery store and bring it home, or even to pick up food for you at the food pantry and bring it home. So there is some real recognition that that transportation is a big issue and something that we can, that we can address uh, using our policy levers. It is much more easily addressable in 
tenderloin and south of market because the distribution of stores that uh, there's a, there's much greater density of corner stores that currently stock fruits and vegetables. In Bayview Hunter's Point, we try really hard to have all the corner stores involved, but there just aren't as many of them, and so the transportation issues are much bigger. Uh, and, you know, my thought there is that in Bayview Hunters Point, it's going to take just a much longer time and a much greater infusion of money to create that market for fruits and vegetables that will encourage more corner stores. So it's a work in progress, but I completely agree that that's a problem. Thank you. I think that is a great point to end on, um, you know, in, in, with the goal of not having patchwork solutions for every forever, but having sustainable um, solutions to a really complex social problem. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.